Hello, and welcome back to the More Money Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Morehouse, and this is episode 329 of the show. And for this episode, we're going to be diving deep into retirement planning, planning and preparing and saving and investing for retirement. And for this topic, I knew the perfect person to have on the show. He has been on the show before, and he was wonderful. And he is kind of my my favorite person to talk about this topic with because he really knows his stuff. And I'm talking about Frederick Vitisi. So he was on the show for episode 262. So make sure to check that one out. Um, but he was uh, on the show to talk about his book, Retirement Income for Life, which was really a, a book specifically for if you're approaching retirement or you're already retired, what can you do to make sure that you don't run out of money? Well, he is back with a brand new book called The Rule of 30. And it is about when you're in that wealth building stage of life and you were, you know, planning for, you know, retirement decades into the future, how do you make sure that you save up enough. And uh, so in case you you know are new to the show, let me share a little bit more about Frederick. So he's a former chief actuary of LifeWorks, which is which makes a lot of sense. When you read his book, he is all about those, uh, you know, mathematical calculations and scenarios and all that kind of stuff. So I, I love that because I, I am a math nerd, let's be honest. Uh, not only that, he is uh, the author of four retirement books. So The Rule of 30 is his latest one. Then he has Retirement Income for Life. Then The Essential Retirement retirement guide and the real retirement. This guy likes retirement. And you know what? I love it because especially too, because he's Canadian, I feel like often, you know, I, I love the amazing American books out there, but sometimes they're like, yeah, but what But what about Canada? What about us? Because, you know, things work a little bit differently. So if you want to learn uh, more about that, well, we're going to discuss it in this episode. He's also a contributor to the Globe and Mail. So often I'll be reading and I'll, you know, see one of his articles and love it. Anyways, uh, we have so much to dive into in this episode. Before I get to that interview with Frederick, here's just a few words I want to share about this podcast episode sponsor. This episode of the More Money Podcast is sponsored by TD Direct Investing. Every June, TD Direct Investing celebrates Options Education Month with the goal of helping investors learn more about options trading. Throughout the month, they are hosting a number of free virtual events for beginner and intermediate investors alike. Want to learn about some of the things people wish they knew before they began or build on some of the knowledge you may already have on options? Visit td.com slash options education month to register for one of the many live webinars TD Direct Investing will be hosting. Or if you're more interested in getting an introduction to options in the first place, there are a number of on-demand video lessons available too. To learn more and to check out the list of free events, just visit jessicamorehouse.com slash options. Once again, to find out what webinars, masterclasses, and on-demand video lessons are available to view for free, just visit jessicamorehouse.com slash options. Welcome, Frederick, back on the show. I'm so excited to have you here again to discuss your latest book, The Rule of 30. Well, thanks, Jessica. It's great to be here. Yeah. So I'm curious because you, so this is your fourth book now and uh, all of your books are about retirement planning. Um, why did you want to write uh, yet another book? I really enjoyed you being on the show talking about your last book, Retirement Income for Life. So what kind of inspired you to write this new book, The Rule of 30? Well, that's an excellent question. I I'm trying to think that books are like children. You should probably stop at two, but uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes you just keep on going. So I'm feeling a bit yeah. like a Mormon uh, right now. Uh, I did a fourth <laughs> book because this was actually in the middle of COVID. 
And I realized that I had written, well, my, my most successful book has been Retirement Income for Life, my third one. But I, I realized that I really needed a sequel. Retirement Income for Life was all about, you've got your nest egg, how do you turn that into income? I've never really talked about how you create that nest egg in the first place. And once again, I thought, like is the case with so many retirement subjects, that there was a bit of uh, misinformation out there. So I thought I would deal with that. And that's the, the whole purpose of the fourth book. How do you create your nest egg? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the, I'm sure it's the same for you, one of the um, most common questions you get from people, especially who are in their, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, in that kind of wealth accumulation phase of their lives of that big question, like, how much do I need for retirement? And, you know, like you kind of uh, talk about in your book, um, you can, you know, Google all day long and find a million different answers. And I think a lot of people are like, I'm just I'm looking for a simple answer. It can't be this complicated. Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Everyone has a different rule of thumb. And um, I appreciate like you really go in depth, you talk about the rule of thumbs. And at the end, you're like, okay, if you need a rule of thumb, here's some rule of thumbs if you just want a starting point. Um, but I, I think what's really important to note is people are looking for a simple answer, but it isn't that simple. And that's kind of, I guess, what you explore with. And in the, the version of this book, it's a bit different than some of your prior books. This is kind of a narrative. You've got some characters um, who are kind of used as examples and, you know, how to kind of maybe develop a plan for them. So I'm, I'm curious, why did you also want to write it in this kind of way where there's, you know, fictional characters and then kind of the mentor who's helping the the couple kind of determine how much they need for their retirement. That kind of happened by itself. I um, was going to write this book the same way as I wrote the first three books, kind of an essay format. Uh, but I started with a couple of characters and a little bit of a dialogue back and forth. And I realized that it's actually a lot easier to explore the subject with uh, dialogue than it is the other way. Because with the dialogue, uh, when you come up against uh, like a, a difficult concept, whatever, then you can say, well, hold on there. Could you please explain that uh, some more? And the person can do that. Or if you come across something that might be controversial, uh, you can have one of the one of the characters express uh, skepticism, and then you can deal with that controversy. So I just found it was actually a very, very easy way to write, um, actually easier than, than essay format. I also thought it was maybe more approachable as well. Uh, like an easier, easier to read as well as easier, easier to write. But I guess my readers can be the judge of that. Mm -hmm. No, I, I thought so. Cause you, you do explore quite a few, um, complex concepts, uh, which I appreciate. It did remind me honestly of studying for the CEC, especially when you're talking about bond yields and all that kind of stuff. And those are kind of, I think if you were to read some of this information in more of an essay kind of, uh, format, it, it could be kind of hard to wrap your head around. So having the characters there asking those questions that you as a reader would have the same, uh, questions I thought was, uh, very helpful. So I, I appreciate that. I thought it was really well, um, put together. So let's kind of start with, um, the, the main, you know, the title and the kind of main concept of the book, which is the rule of 30, which is a different way of kind of organizing how you should save for retirement. Do you want to kind of explain how did you kind of develop this rule of 30? So first of all, very basically, the rule of 30 is that the uh, percentage of your gross income that you ought to be allocating uh, throughout your uh, career, throughout your lifetime, uh, toward uh, saving ought to be 30% less what you're putting into your mortgage on your house and also less any one-time um, uh, expenses that you really can't can't ignore, you really can't avoid, um, which are going to be very onerous for maybe a few years of your life. And the example I give in the book is one about daycare expenses. So, uh, and, the, and I kind of, I didn't actually start with the rule of 30 when I started the book. Um, it was about halfway through. I started had had all kinds of complicated 
rules like, well, maybe you want to add on another 5% saving if this happens and subtract 3% if that happens and so on. But when I, uh, I got, to, uh, got to the end, I realized, well, it's actually very close to having those pieces being adding up to 30%. And I thought, well, should it really be 31 or 32? Well, I guess you can always say that. Uh, but rule of 30 just was more catchy, and it still got the job done. So I, then, of course, I back-tested it. I actually used it against, uh, assumed that people would have used that rule in the past uh, under historical periods to see whether or not they would have saved enough for retirement. And the answer was yes, they would have saved uh, just as much as if um, they had saved something more more conventional, like 10% of pay every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what so I really... Yeah, it, it did work. And it's always nice to have kind of a nice round number like 30 instead of 32 to remember. Um, but I, I thought it was really interesting how you explained because like I kind of mentioned, so many people are just looking for a rule of thumb, how much of my income right now should I be putting towards retirement. But like you talk about in the book, well, your life is so different, we go through different phases, there's really expensive times in our life, you know, usually like during our 30s and 40s, we have kids, we have daycare, we have a lot of expenses, we have maybe an expensive mortgage. And that makes it very difficult. I mean, that's what I come up with, uh, you know, talking to so many people, it's like, it's really difficult to save for retirement during those um, particular times in our lives. And then it gets easier when some of you know, we don't have daycare costs, or maybe the mortgage is paid off. And that kind of frees up, as you mentioned, the book, lots of your spendable income. And so your kind of strategy is is not about having a, you know, strict, you have to save 10 or 20% uh, of your income for retirement, otherwise, you're just not going to be able to retire. It's about being flexible and changing how much you can save um, and put towards some of those expenses, depending on what phase of your life is. Do you want to kind of explore that a little bit more about how, you know, like in your younger years, you'll save less, but that's going to be okay in the end? Well, I yeah, that's right. But when I went through the example, first of all, assuming that the individuals, uh, the couple was saving 12% of pay every year. I just found that they ended up having such a tiny percentage of their pay that they had to live on. Uh, when you subtract income taxes, subtract daycare expenses, uh, mortgage payments, everything else, they were living off about 25% of their pay. Now, 25%, say gross that up for, for taxes, uh, call it 30%. I mean, no one's going to say that you only need 30% of your income in retirement. So how... Why should you be expected to live off of their 30% of your income when you're when you're uh, 30 or 35 years of age? Um, so that, it was insane. So I, I looked at that uh, at the uh, at the chart showing how much of your income you're actually living off of at uh, different parts of your life, and it was generally in one's 30s. Um, well, usually, as they say, when you have daycare expenses or young children, and that's when your mortgage is the biggest percentage of your uh, of, of of income that you're going to have during your your lifetime. That's when that's when it becomes most of a challenge. And yeah, and I do understand that it's going to be uh, nerve wracking for some people not to be saving very much for a few years. They'll be, be afraid that this is going to become the norm, but it doesn't have to be because uh, the vast majority of people go through the same stage. They, uh, their income is lower uh, in real terms in their 30s, then they have high, heavier expenses, and then all of those factors change by their 40s, and then they just have to bear down and start really applying the rule of 30 and really saving more money. So rule of 30 means you may end up saving 0% or very close to 0% for a few years in your 30s, but it also means you may have to be saving 20% at some point in your 40s and maybe even close to 30% for a few years in your 50s. Uh, but but in every case, though, it's going to be a more comfortable way to save for retirement than if you just uh, bite the bullet and try to save 12% year in and year out. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the thing I hear so often. It's, you know, how am I supposed to afford, you know, buying a home and those expenses and then having kids? Like, is it even realistic, depending on, you know, where you live, you know, in Canada or the U.S.? And I think a lot of people are, you know, feel, again, that kind of... uh, guilt or that obligation to set aside a certain amount for retirement. Otherwise, they're they're not being responsible with their money. But, you know, it's, it's basically you're asking yourself, how do I do it all? And it's like, you can't do it all at the same time. It's it's going to change with whatever phase of life you're in and also what your kind of lifestyle is. Like if you're going to have one kid versus two, that's a very different, uh, you know, lifestyle, you're going to have some more, you know, spendable income if you have one kid versus two because of the daycare costs and all of the stuff that's involved. So I think, yeah, I really appreciated how you kind of explained a different way of thinking as opposed to just these, you know, really strict rules towards savings, because, you know, that's just, it's just not realistic. And I would say the underlying philosophy of the book is that retirement is important. The years that you live in retirement are important and you want to get the most of them, but that's only one aspect of your life, one phase of your life. You also have to think about your life when you're in your 30s and 40s. You want to look back wistfully when you're in your 70s and maybe no longer able to do everything and say, I should have done more when I was 35. But you couldn't because you were saving every penny toward uh, toward retirement. Absolutely. Now, some other things that you talk about in the book, which I also appreciate, and I think really explain some of the questions that I get often is, you know, okay, uh, that's great. I kind of understand how much I should be putting away in my RSP and my TFSA and stuff like that. But uh, what should I actually invest in? And because obviously, with your background, I always appreciate you have like lots of charts and lots of, um, you know, going through lots of different simulations to kind of share different scenarios. Um, One thing I think that is shifting is, you know, in lots of the books I used to read, you know, a decade ago, they would be the kind of asset allocations they would kind of suggest for for investors, especially younger investors in their 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, did have a huge percentage of bonds. And you kind of talked about, well, you know, we can look at historical figures, but then we can also take a look at what's probably going to happen in the future. There may be, you know, a good argument for not having as big of a, a portion of your portfolio in bonds. But it's like, honestly, when I was in my 20s, I think my portfolio was 70% stocks, 30% bonds. And now I look at that, I'm like, wow. I probably should. That probably wasn't the right asset mix for someone who was 25. Do you want to kind of share a little bit more about how things are shifting with kind of some of the old, I think, advice about asset allocations from when you're a bit younger? So as you as you say, I looked both in the past as well as made uh, made some uh, uh, forecast of what's going to be happening in the future with respect to each of to the capital markets. But even if you look at the past, uh, I still found that somebody age 30 ought to be investing 100% of their of their uh, uh, their nest egg in stocks at that point in time. And that, that 100% will then kind of taper off to maybe closer to 60% by the time they actually reach retirement age. But it should be 100%. And this was, uh, when I tested it, this even was true uh, during periods when bonds were producing a real return, that is after inflation return of 4% a year, even 45 5% a year. These days, the, the, the real return on bonds is, is actually below zero. It's ne- negative. And it's funny that we'd actually have be applying the same, the same uh, asset mix uh, at a time when real returns on bonds are zero as we used to do when, when real returns were 4%. So, so uh, bottom line is, if this made sense historically in times when real returns were 4%, then it makes even more sense now when real returns are, are closer to 0%. So yeah, a 30-year-old ought to be putting 100% in stocks 
And then over time, that ought to be tapering off. And one way to do that is with target date funds, but you also can just do it manually and just uh, in, insert more, uh, a bit more uh, bonds in your portfolio over time. Mm-hmm. One question I often get, and I don't know if you'd be able to answer this, is in terms of like a target date fund is great because it does it for you. But let's say you did want to do it on your own, whether using a robo-advisor then changing your asset mix or doing it self-directed. At what point do you know it's time to shift, you know, bring more bonds into my portfolio? Is there, you know, again, a rule of thumb or is it really, it depends? There, uh, you could you can make up a rule of thumb. Uh, you can just assume that it's going to be 100% when you're 30. And you can then also, if you're, if you're have, if you're reasonably uh, able to take take on some risk, you can also assume it should be 60% when you are 60, and then you just uh, slowly uh, shift from 100% to 60% over that period of time. And maybe what you do is you add on another 5% um, every uh, every five years between that period. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> That's an easy answer to that. Um, yeah, that's that's fair. And it's interesting, too, because I know um, I think target date funds were, I think, more prevalent in the U.S. And I think they're going to become I foresee them. They're going to be, you know, more involved in Canada. And I think that's something that we've been uh, lacking for a long time, um, especially for people who want to you know, be more involved in their investments, maybe not use an advisor who's managing their portfolio, but want to do it on their own. And that's always been, been like kind of, a, I think, a, a sticking point or, or a place of concern. They're like, well, I don't know how to do that on my own, but uh, it's actually fairly uh, simple. Um, another uh, interesting thing, because you, know, you talked a lot about you know, how to build your portfolio and asset allocations and things like that. And you addressed a lot of questions that I also get, which is like, okay, well, but what about real estate? You know, real estate has been very hot in the news for, I mean, honestly, 10 years because, you know, I'm from Vancouver, I live in Toronto. It's always been, you know, a topic of conversation with um, just uh, the rising cost of housing. And that's a question I get a lot, too. It's like, well, I want to invest for my retirement, but it seems like everyone's making some really great money in investing in real estate. And you had a really great um, section in your book, you know, addressing that. So, you know, what would you kind of say for someone who's thinking of maybe I should focus more on real estate because I see, you know, my neighbors are making a killing? Well, if you look, if you, if you look at the very long-term picture, uh, real estate may not look quite as attractive as it has over the past ten or twenty years. Um, and this is this phenomenon is largely isolated to uh, Vancouver and Toronto. I mean, it has been a phenomenal time to be invested, but no, the more phenomenal it is, uh, has been over the last last twenty years, the less you can really expect it in the future because we are getting to the point where we are one of the most expensive markets, uh, housing markets in in the world. And at some point in time, others will also kind of perceive that maybe this is getting a little expensive. And then at that point, you're going to see uh, future increases being being less than they have been. So we shouldn't be extrapolating past increases into the future and say, well, this is always going to be the case. It just can't be. Mathematically, it can't happen this way. So I, in the book, I do mention, for example, New York. In, in New York, uh, the, the increases over the past 20 years have been much less than, than they have in Toronto. And that might be more, more the kind of future that we, can, we should be expecting than, uh, than what we've seen over the past 20 years. And as I said, when you do that, you look at that, um, real estate, I mean, it, it can be kind of enticing, but if you're going to become a, a landlord, it's going to be being in problems of its own uh, term, in terms of cash flow, in terms of having to change, uh, change tenants, in terms of having to fix a, a leaky uh, a leaky toilet at two o'clock in the morning, those kinds of things. So it's not the easiest thing in the world. Um, I certainly can't fault anybody who's been in real estate for the past 20 years, but uh, I concluded, you know, having looked at, at the longer trends and looked at different parts of the world that I probably wouldn't be doing it if, it, if I were 35 today, I probably wouldn't be investing in real estate. 
for uh, it, with it within my within my, my retirement yeah. portfolio. Yeah. So, but then on the other side of it, you know, you do kind of discuss renting versus owning, which is obviously, you know, if you own your principal residence, very different than owning real estate that you're renting out as kind of an investment. And it seemed like overall, um, even though there's, you know, historical data that shows, you know, renting has been actually pretty good. Again, if you're, you're investing the difference and there's lots of great, you know, benefits of renting, but overall for most people, buying is still a pretty good idea for most people. Yeah, I looked at that, and I was a bit surprised by by that. That uh, even even in more more recent periods, when real estate has done as well as it has, that you would actually would have been better off renting than than owning. And that's because stocks have also done very well during that period of time as well. And also because of the fact that we're actually paying less, or until very recently, we've been paying less in rent than we used to pay as a percentage of the price of a home. Um, so it actually was a pretty good deal. Um, so with renting, if you time everything perfectly and markets pan out in a certain way, you can hit a home run. The trouble is you also can strike out pretty badly. Whereas if you own, you can never really strike out. You might only hit a single, but uh, to use a baseball analogy, but you're never going to strike out. And that essentially is, uh, was the conclusion I came to that it still does make sense uh, to own a home if you can. And obviously for young Canadians these days, that's a tremendous challenge. A big challenge, that's for sure. But yeah, like you you talk about in the book and even the examples you were giving with the couple who who did own their home is, you know, the the one thing that I think we often kind of don't maybe pay as much attention to because it is so far into the future is there will be eventually a point where you don't have a mortgage and so you free up, you know, thousands of dollars. Whereas if you're renting and you don't, you know, own a place, you're going to have to continue to have that line item in your budget. How, how will that really impact? I'm just curious, like, uh, you know, if you do decide to rent long term, how big of an impact will that be on your retirement, you know, savings number and just your retirement income plan? It's just it's so much easier to uh, to plan for retirement if you own versus if you rent. Like uh, in in my previous uh, writings, I've shown that your retirement income target should be more like fifty percent of your your final income, your final gross income, as opposed to seventy percent. And I, I, I once again, I, even in this book, I do I do flesh it out as to why that's the case. I show that it really has to be more closer to fifty than, than seventy. Uh, with uh, by by mapping out the expenses expenses and excruciating detail for for brett and megan in the book um so that's kind of what it should be and but i get to 50 percent if if somebody owns a home because you know by the time they they retire yeah they certainly still have the uh, property taxes that they have to worry about house housing insurance housing maintenance all that they always had that but they no longer have the mortgage payments uh, assuming they've done everything right and they paid off the home and so it means that they're kind of front-loading the expense of of uh of accommodation uh, over their lifetime in, in, into their, their working years. And so it makes it that much easier, I guess, to retire. Whereas with renting, you've got the same expense both before and after retirement. So it does mean you have to save a bit more, more for retirement as a result. Mm-hmm. And you also talked a little bit about, because there was a scenario that uh, the characters in the book, um, Brett and Megan were talking about, okay, uh, you know, what would be, I guess, the big impact of, you know, because I see a, a lot of this with, um, you know, people retiring now, staying in their house that they have owned for all these years, it is paid off, as opposed to downsizing. I feel like downsizing was kind of a, oh, of course, you're going to downsize in retirement. But I feel like a lot of people are choosing not to, they, you know, they like the neighborhood, they're close to family, they just like being in their house. What uh, do you see that going to be more of a trend, people staying in their houses instead of doing what, you know, we always thought people would do was, you know, downsize their house into a condo? 
That actually is very, very interesting. I've seen, I have seen examples of people downsizing. Um, I, I, belong, I belong to a golf club, and I know a bunch of a number of couples who have who have downsized. They almost never do it for financial reasons, at least not the people I know. They've been doing it more for reasons of lifestyle. They just don't want to have to cut a, cut cut their lawn anymore or take care of a yard, and they want to be able to retire uh, to uh, travel more easily. So there have been people who've been downsizing, and that's been happening. But it hasn't been happening as much as I was expecting it to happen. Uh, I thought uh, the vast majority of baby boomers would end up uh, downsizing uh, in retirement, uh, giving up their bigger homes. But uh, it hasn't been. Um, so that has come as a surprise to me. I guess it's because they're, uh, number one is inertia. They, they're, they're comfortable in their homes. Another two is they tend to have children and grandchildren and they still want to have a house for, for, for to, to accommodate all that's going on. So um, that may end up becoming the, the, new, the new norm. The other thing too, of course, is that they, they've done so well on the real estate on their home that maybe they just want to I don't know if they just want to keep it intact as opposed to selling it off. Um, but downsizing certainly is, and that's another reason why uh, I like the idea of owning a home, because it, it certainly is an option for people who are who maybe didn't save quite enough for retirement or decide they want to have uh, maybe a, a more active lifestyle in retirement, more traveling and so on, and they, they want to spend less of their income on, on accommodation and, uh, and more on, uh, on travel and other, other aspects of their mm-hmm. of life. Mm. Yeah, we'll see what happens. But yeah, it's 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 interesting. I feel like less and less people are downsizing, which is also kind of wreaking havoc on the real estate, uh, you know, in Toronto, Vancouver and other areas, because there's just not a lot of uh, accommodation to uh, buy. But um, another thing that you, you talked about, which I think is also another thing that you're like, oh, I never really thought about that, probably because I'm not at that phase in my life. But, you know, we make the, you know, these plans you know, several decades in advance, but there's always something that could potentially happen. And you talked about the potential that, you know, let's say you plan to uh, retire at 65, you may not, you know, have that option. You may be forced out of your job earlier because your employer, you know, gives you a package and you kind of have no option but to leave. And it's important to kind of take into consideration some of these, you know, unexpected things. You might have to retire five years earlier. Like what, I I guess if this could happen, and I I know it can, um, um, like prime example, you know, my dad thought he was going to work at the same company until he retired. And then he was uh, laid off because there was a big uh, merger and he had to retrain and get a completely different job. And now he's been working contracts because um, he's in a completely different industry now until he was retired. So it was, it was one of those things where it's like, and this kind of happened, I guess, maybe 10 years before he was going to retire, but a, a big life event that it's like, oh, okay, this is changing our whole retirement plan. What do you kind of say to people who are making, you know, really are into like making a good solid plan, but it's important to make plans for when those plans don't happen? Yeah. Well, if, if they plan to retire at 65, they'll have to save X percent of pay. If they retire at 58, they'll have to save uh, an awful lot more. So people might look at that when they're 35 and say, well, on that basis, I'll just assume I'm going to keep on working until I'm 65. That way I can save less money. But that's not how things actually pan out, as you say. Um, there have been studies showing that the average age where people expect to retire, when you ask them before retirement, they expect to retire on average uh, at 65. But in actual fact, their average age when they actually do retire is 58, seven-year difference. Um, and what's going on are, are two things. One is forced uh, forced downsizings, or they're just, they're just laid off. The employer no longer wants them around. The other thing that's going on is health. And you can't assume that your health is going to be uh, good that whole time. 
The third thing that's going on too is uh, you just don't have the energy to be working full time after age 60, as uh, which uh, isn't even a consideration when you're 35. You can't imagine that's going to be. I mean, you can't imagine that's going to be a problem. But but believe me, by the time you get to past 60, it's difficult to work from uh, 8:30 to 5:30 uh, on a daily basis. Oh, whatever, yeah. whatever I hear that from be. my parents all the time. <laughs> They're like, I can't wait. They're both about three or four years away, and yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's, they never talked about this in their. 50s but now that they're in their 60s they're like I'm just you know counting the the years just like you know one more year to year and I was going to bring up it's like oh you know like for example like my dad he's actually working in a, a job that he absolutely loves it was something that he aspired to when he was in his you know 20s working in the film industry but he's like you know what it's, I'm like wouldn't you want to continue that you know it's contracts you can always say yeah sure I'll take this contract like you don't have to say no I'm done working forever um and he's like you know what no it's I'm tired and the technology changes every project it's just a lot to keep up and again yeah I used to always think oh yeah no I'll definitely I'll never stop working but it's like you don't know how you're going to feel and what your your desires and needs are going to be you know so different in 30 years time so it's best to kind of have some be a little conservative when you are planning you know when will I actually retire well I've spoken to many many people about on this subject and I find almost everybody after, uh, over the age of 60 still wants to work but they want to work on their own terms so they they want to work uh, on very flexible hours they want to be able to play golf maybe two or three afternoons a week uh, they want to be able to sleep in maybe a couple of mornings they want to they don't want to have set deadlines um, so uh, in other words they want to be able to work they just don't want to be told how how much they have to work and when they have to work which mm-hmm. <laughs> which isn't yeah. always very useful <laughs> uh, I mean, for a job, but so so there. So to have that kind of flexibility just means you're going to be making less money after sixty than you used to than you you were used to. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, about yeah, having kind of a, a game yeah. plan for like if that happens, what does that mean? Does that mean that we have to downsize or change something in our plan? I guess yeah. And so for every so it becomes a compromise at some point. Like for every extra year you work. Uh, you're, you're going to be and saving and putting away money for retirement. You're going to be uh, improving your potential lifestyle in retirement uh, for every year you do that. But also, you're also going to be cutting down the number of years in which you can enjoy that lifestyle. And it, it becomes uh, especially problematic in one's 60s. Um, I've always thought of, uh, well, they talk about retirement years. One talks about them as the go-go years, the slow-go years, and the no-go years. The go-go <laughs> years are... The go-go years are really 160s, and that's when you're you're almost uh, what you were when you were in your 40s and 50s, but now you've got money and you've got some freedom. You don't have children to take care of anymore, and that's a really a wonderful time. If you spend that whole time uh, working uh, on the assumption that you're going to really enjoy life even more when you're in your 70s, it often doesn't pan out that way. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like most of us need to plan for an earlier retirement than we expected because we just don't know how we're going to feel. I mean, that's something that's that I've been thinking about a lot because I always thought, I'm like, oh yeah, no problem. I'll work until 65. I mean, I've got a unique situation that I don't work a typical nine to five for an employer, work for myself. Um, but you know, I don't know what I'll want by then. Maybe I won't want to, you know, maybe I will want to just take up one or two projects when I want to, you know, starting in my mid fifties. Cause like you say, once you are at that point, yeah. Do you really want to work throughout your sixties when you can enjoy your sixties, you know, and just hang out with the grandkids or travel or do those things because once you hit 70 you may not have the energy or the desire to do that anymore 
Or, so, or yeah. the health, or the health to do that. Or the anymore. health, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's another thing that I think a lot of us take for granted when you're younger in your accumulation years. You don't really think about potential health things. These happen, and they're sometimes out of your control. Well, what, um, what, one of the interesting statistics mm-hmm. I uh, uncovered in my uh, in the previous book was that uh, now, in the case of a male, it wouldn't be that different for females. But for a healthy fifty-year-old male, they only have a chance in two of surviving until age 70 without uh, either dying or without having a critical illness. And that by critical illness, I mean something serious like uh, cancer, heart disease, uh, tumor. But there's only chance in two of being able to actually get through those 20 years. So something we we might take for granted when you're 30, but uh, you shouldn't. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I know what I did appreciate in your book is because, again, a lot of people are looking for that guidance, that direction. It sounds like your kind of advice in the book is practice the rule of 30 in your accumulation years. And then when you hit 50, when you're getting close to your retirement date, that is when you want to kind of maybe look into adjusting that strategy. Look at that perk um, calculator that you talked about in your previous book to kind of see where you need to shift if you need to make any changes. Is that about right? That's that's very important. And that's, this is actually one of the reasons why I didn't worry too much about tweaking rule of 30 to make it rule of 31 or rule of 29, whatever, because uh, if you practice this religiously up until, say, up until age 55, and at that point, uh, you then let a calculator take over because up until then, you've been making assumptions about when you're going to retire and how much money you're going to be making and so on, and how also how much you would have accumulated, like how well your investments would have done. By age 55, it, it'll be largely reality. You can look back and see how much you've saved, uh, and, you, and you also have a much better idea of how many more years you're going to be working. So... Uh, at that point, I would say, yes, uh, use a calculator. I, I suggest my perk, not because I make any money off of it. It's actually offered for free uh, at perk.lifeworks.com. Um, and there's other calculators out there as well, I know. And uh, I'd say, sure, use whatever, whichever one you find uh, you're most comfortable with. But at that point, have, use a calculator to figure out how much more money you ought to be saving for retirement uh, in, in your remaining years. Yeah. Because, yeah, really, once you hit that time, because, again, I think so many people are afraid of retiring with not enough money. And so they just, you know, get into this like, oh, we just got to save every penny. But if you realize, you know, put in the numbers, you're like, actually, we're doing really great. We can maybe even minimize how much we're saving. Then you have, you know, free up some more money so you can enjoy your 50s a little bit more. Because it's like, I feel like your 30s and 40s and your 20s, they're a grind. You've got expenses. You're not earning as much as you are in later years. And uh, you know, you're just trying to save every penny. It's it's a lot of uh, expectations and a lot of things to do. So maybe, you know, when you're in your 50s, then you can actually take a look back and be like, where are we doing? You know, how are we doing? And what can we adjust? So, yeah. But one thing about the rule of 30, some people might think I'm giving young people a free pass to say, don't worry about too much about saving money. Uh, because you have other expenses you have to worry about. But uh, you, there is the, uh, the flip side of the coin. It does mean by, by your 50s that you're saving more than 10%. You might be saving more, even more than 20%. And that's fine because you, your, your, your disposable income would have gone up substantially by that point in time anyway. So you can actually can do so without feeling the, the pain uh, of doing so. And now, it also means, though, that you may not be able to to greatly amplify your lifestyle. You can't suddenly go on a cruise every three or four months. I mean, you do have to think about um, how much money you want to have once your income totally stops. So you do have to really, uh, so if you apply the rule of 30 throughout, you're going to be fine. 
Well, that's that's comforting. I think for lots of people listening, especially my listeners who honestly I, I hear from so many, it's like I'm just worried that I'm not going to save enough. Especially people too who maybe and I, I like this in your book is like if you haven't started saving anything because again life has just been so expensive for you um, and you haven't been able to start saving really until your 40s and you do give that example of like that cousin. It's like it is possible. It's it's you know you just again have to kind of adjust the numbers. But um, but, but you know I'm sure you hear this too. It's like is it too late to start in, uh, you know investing or saving for retirement and the answer should always be absolutely not absolutely not it's never never too late to start saving for retirement i do have an example in the book of the cousin who started saving very late uh but i i mean i certainly wouldn't encourage it there are some really good and substantial reasons why somebody may not be able to save at the age of 32 but hopefully they'll they'll be saving by the time they're 37 or 38 um, and that they just aren't making excuses as to why they can't save. I say, well, I always wanted to take that world cruise, I, and I can't do that and save, so I really will do that cruise first. At some point, you do have to bite the bullet and start saving. So you have to be, as, as I say, when it comes to the, applying the rule of 30, you have to be very honest with yourself. And, and when you're looking at what you're going to be subtracting off that rule of 30 to figure out how much you have left to save, you have to make sure it really is a, an essential expenditure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can't just be like, oh, this is essentials. Like, is it really? You know, I, I think your examples of essentials being like the daycare, mortgage, or rent. Yeah, those are essentials. <laughs> so you can't not do those in order to, you know, have a place to put your kids while you're at work or to have shelter. Um, so yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. Um, before I let you go, is there anything else, um, you know, any kind of um, message that you want to leave listeners with um, that, you know, they can look forward to, you know, extracting from your book? Um, what I would say the other thing would be um, uh, people still want a rule of thumb when all is said and done. And rule of 30, well, it ends up being a very, very flexible kind of a number that varies throughout your lifetime. But they say, well, what if I did want to save just one percentage? What would that be? Uh, historically, it would have been more like 10 percent up until very recently. But as I say, real interest rates these days are so low, it's no longer 10 percent. I would say if I had to pick any one, per, one per, uh, percentage, it would be more like 12 percent. Uh, and that would be over like a 30-year period. Uh, and the other way to look at it would be if you want to say 1% before 40 and 1% after 40, then maybe you want to make it 5% before and 15% after. So that would be about it uh, for people who really do want to have a simple rule of thumb. And if you do all those things, I, I, I feel that uh, people will do fine. Yeah. Yeah. And I, what I also really like, so you know, if you do grab a copy uh, of uh, Frederick's book, if you do grab a copy of Frederick's book, you have a really great um, kind of summary in the back that really breaks down because it's like there's a lot of information in your book, a lot of scenarios, a lot of graphs. It's nice once you finish the book, you're like, oh, that's a lot of information where you have a really great section that breaks all like reminds you like, remember, this is what we went through. And those are some great things that you can kind of go back to as you're like trying to apply this to your life to be like, wait, what was that part? You can go back to the end. You're like, oh, right. This was this was what he uh, he meant by that. <laughs> So thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on the show. I'm so excited that you have this other book. I feel like it's a great, like I mentioned, maybe read this book first and then Retirement Income for Life to kind of see what the second phase of your life, the kind of um, income part, uh, retirement income part of your life is. And uh, I think, you, yeah, like you said, you'll probably, you'll be fine. You'll probably be fine. You'll be fine. You'll be just fine. <laughs> So uh, before I let you go, actually, where can people, you know, grab a copy of this book and find you online if they want to follow you? Okay, well, the book, uh, the book, The Rule of 30 is available at uh, Chapters Indigo stores, I think at ind independent uh, booksellers as well, and also at, at Amazon.ca. Mm -hmm. 
Perfect. 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 Well, thank you so much. And also where, where was that calculator again? Cause I know, you know, you talked about it in our last interview and people really like checking out where can they find that link again? Um, if you, uh, if you put in the old link, uh, it'll still take you to, to the new link, which I mm. believe is at, uh, at, at LifeWorks. but yeah, just perk, perk.mornoshapel.com will, will certainly do that. Yeah, or just Google Perk, which is P-E-R-C, but I'll include yeah. it in the show notes for this episode so people can try it out for themselves. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show and sharing all your wisdom. Uh, I appreciate it. And my pleasure. Thanks, Jessica. Perfect. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. I'll talk to you later. And that was episode 329 with Frederick Vitisi. Make sure to uh, find out more about him and all of his wonderful books at frederickvitisi.com. I'm going to spell that for you. F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K-B-E-T-T-E-S-E.com. Of course, I'm going to link just everything really easy for you in the show notes for this episode, jessicamorehouse.com slash 329. And if you need a reminder, you can find every episode ever on my website. Just go to jessicamorehouse.com slash whatever the number of that episode is or jessicamorehouse.com slash podcast to see all of my past episodes. So I've got uh, quite a bit to share with you, including how you can enter to win a copy of his latest book. So stick around. Just a few words I want to share about this podcast episode sponsor. This episode of the More Money Podcast is sponsored by TD Direct Investing. June is Options Education Month, and TD Direct Investing is hosting a number of free virtual events throughout the month to educate both beginners and more advanced investors about, well, their options with trading options. Or if you want a full walkthrough of options trading for beginners, there are also a number of on-demand video lessons that will walk you through what options are, common option terms such as calls and puts, and what the difference between in-the-money and out-of-the-money options are. To learn more and to find out what free events you'd like to check out, visit jessicamorehouse.com options. Once again, to find out what webinars, masterclasses, and on-demand video lessons are available to view for free, visit jessicamorehouse.com slash options. Okay, first things first, I'm giving away a copy of his book, The Rule of 30. And with his book, I believe now there are 13 books I'm giving away. So you can just you know, enter to win all of them. I don't care. Um, and then really you have a bigger, you know, better chance of winning one if you, you know, enter to win because there's 13 books I'm giving away. So all you have to do to enter to win is go to jessicamorehouse.com slash contest and you'll see all of the books I'm giving away. Enter away. And I will be uh, drawing winners when this season wraps up, which is now looking like mid-June. So about June 15th is the date in my calendar for the last episode to air. So you've still got some time, but not too much time. You really don't have that much time. So might as well go there and uh, enter to win. Okay, what else is new? What else is new? Not a heck of a lot. It's just uh, there's some things I can't wait to share with you, but I just can't right now. They're just uh, not public yet. Um, but um, in personal news, I'm slowly learning how to garden. Um it's a, it's a lot. Um, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, when people are like, they're just like a natural green thumb, not this gal. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just honestly ripping out plants. That's, that's what I'm doing right now. I need some help. Uh, that's one thing I'd never really thought about, you know, in terms of home ownership is, is taking care of your, your, you know, garden. Yeah. It's a lot of work, man. It's a lot of work. That's literally why I, now I understand. I used to always wonder like, why is my mom so busy every weekend, you know, from spring all throughout summer? Like she's always in the garden. That's why it's just a lot of freaking work. So 
That's where I'm going to be spending most of my time. Besides August, where I'm going to Costa Rica. I can't remember if I shared that with you already. Probably did. But I'm pretty freaking excited for the first vacation I've had in over two years, like two and a half years. It's time. It's time, guys. It's it's just I've been living in this house. Well, I haven't. But you know what I mean? I feel like I've been just living in this cave for like two and a half years. And I need to go out. I need to go. I need to see something new. You know, need to see something new. Um, Other things to remind you of in case you don't know, um, I have a full free resource library on my website, jessicamorehouse.com slash resources that has a bunch of spreadsheets that I'm currently updating and you will get access to the updates once they're done Um, and free guides and, and past webinars, lots of great stuff. So make sure to check that out. And also, in case you don't know, uh, and you're Canadian, I have an investing course called uh, Wealth Building Blueprint for Canadians. And it's an online course that is focused specifically on, well, building your wealth, but uh, through passive investing. So, you know, I talk all the time about, you know, investing and index funds and just, you know, uh, just getting rich slowly. That's what this course is all about. And I've made a recently huge update of the course. Um, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. So if you want to learn more, just go to the show notes, jessicamorehouse.com com slash 329 or you can go to jessicamorehouse.com slash wbb for wealth building blueprint um yeah that is really it i've got to say um but thank you so much for sticking around big shout out to my wonderful podcast editor matt rideout and i'll be back here next wednesday with a fresh new episode of the more money podcast and that one here's a little tease i will have romana king on the show to talk about her new book house poor no more nine steps that grow the value of your home and net worth. If you're a recent new homeowner, or maybe you're not, but you just want some good tips. And like, this literally is like the Bible. Like It's thick, but it's also like very specific, like anything you could possibly want to know about how to um, just maintain your home or increase the value of your home. It is in this book. So you're going to enjoy it. Or even if you're not a homeowner and you just like this stuff, because I, I mean, even, you know, before I bought my place, I loved house stuff. You're going to enjoy this episode. So if that's something to look forward to next week. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. Have an amazing rest of your week and weekend. I'll see you back here next Wednesday. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.